Well, hi, everybody. This is Jean Nathan. It's Crosstown Conversations. And um, at the top of the show today has to be um, this new program that the uh, Gina Wink is doing, Greater New Orleans Incorporated, um, with incredibly exciting uh, funding from the state. Um, but Gene, it's, it's th- first of all, thanks for having me on. Uh, it's great to be with you. And thank you for all your leadership over all these years uh, in the creative industries. We wouldn't be here uh, without you, uh, most likely. So, so thank you for, uh, for that. Yeah, so, so the group that we have is called uh, NOME, the New Orleans Music Economy uh, Initiative. And what NOME is trying to do, Gene, is that it recognizes that uh, you know, we have this reputation for, for music and art, uh, but it really is grounded in live performance and festivals. And uh, when you actually get down to the business of music, which is where most of the money is made. Most of that's not been happening uh, in New Orleans. It's happened in Nashville and LA and New York and increasingly in Atlanta. So as a result, we kind of felt that we were being over many decades uh, culturally colonized for lack of a a nicer way to say it. We were producing the intellectual property. Yeah, and then others were making the money off of it. It really was not their fault. It was our fault for really not focusing on developing everything beneath the tip of the performance iceberg. So um, the objective of Gnome is to try to rectify that by building the business of music uh, in greater New Orleans, which is where uh, you don't necessarily see it or hear it literally, but it's where the money is being made. So um, this program, Miked Up, which is a music industry career development university partnership, which is a bit tortured as a name, but Miked Up is pretty hot, um, is an internship program for uh, graduating college seniors to get them into local artist management companies uh, like Mid Citizen, for example, which manages uh, Big Frida and Tank and the Bangas and Sweet Crude to give them an opportunity to learn the ropes of artistic management uh, and either help grow the, uh, the talent for that company or build their own roster and go out and start their own company. And so it's a, it's a paid internship uh, it also involves classroom time uh, and other uh, educational opportunities, um, and we're just thrilled to be uh, we're thrilled to be starting it this year. I think it's so critical because <clears throat> we do have programs uh, at most of the universities in town for uh, training people in the actual production of a creative product, whether it's music or theater or. Um, uh, visual arts and so on, but there has been a disappointing percentage of the students that are taking these courses in our system staying in New Orleans, and the critical factor has been jobs um, or the lack of confidence that a senior may have in actually forming a business. So it seems like the program you're speaking of, this mic'd up, addresses that right on, spot on, um, and, and really looking at the talent that we have either native here or that comes here for these educational programs and making sure that we have the opportunities for them to stay. So I, I just can't think of anything that's more targeted. It's very, very important. Well, you know, what, what I like about these internship programs, and we have a number of them in other vectors, we have one with uh, for startups with our HBCUs. We have one in Mechatronics, working with companies like Latrim and Zatarans is that um, they tend to start off small with a, a fairly limited number of students involved, but once they work, they grow over time. And there's a lot of substance there. Every student that's going through that 
is getting a real world experience and is gonna help a company grow and is likely to stay. So these programs are not quick fixes, but in aggregate, they can begin to really move the needle uh, over time. And uh, you know, our goal is to basically um, beat Nashville at its own game in the next phase of music, which is gonna be blockchain and Web3 related, which means it will not only have the reputation as a great place for a live performance to go catch a band or go to a festival, but if you wanna have a career in music because you're such a music lover or such a masochist that you're going to look to New Orleans uh, as your home to go and do that. Right, exactly. And, um, you know, uh, I, I did some research when I first started getting hooked on this idea of how important it was to develop our creative industries and try to understand what happened in Nashville that didn't happen here. And it's a very uh, interesting little story. So uh, there were some insurance companies there that wanted to advertise on that new media radio. They said, okay, well, what do we do in between our ads? <laughs> and literally um, some, some brainiac in that group said, well, why don't we just put those country musicians on the mm -hmm. air? So that starts getting that product out, people recognizing and hearing that kind of music. And Grand Ole Opry literally evolved out of that and a, a city that actually was initially somewhat reluctant to invest in music because there was mm -hmm. there as well as any city, a sort of, wait, music is, is business, <laughs> you know? Um, so, but the, the advertising, the increased sales, the beginning of a recording industry in Nashville came from this idea of utilizing this new media radio. So uh, I think that it, it takes kind of um, a, a small idea in a way, or it's not really a small idea, but some particular thing that will kick things off that then really continues to, to grow. So that's what I think is gonna happen with your program. Tell me a little bit about um, this company, Mid-Century. I'm not familiar with them and I, I was really interested to see how they stepped up to participate with you. Uh, well, uh, Mid Citizen is is led by Reed Martin, and he's just one of these uh, you know lovely young guns in the industry, uh, and he is managing some of the hottest artists that are coming out of uh, out of New Orleans. He manages uh, Big Frida, uh, manages uh, Grammy winning Tank and the Bangas, and one of the best names in music, he manages a uh, Sweet Crude uh, amongst others. And so, uh, when I look at people like Reed who are involved, or Rush Move DJ Rush Move who has a production company that is taking advantage of the mic'd up program. These are the next generation of Greater New Orleans, New Orleans uh, music business people, uh, the Quint Davises of the next generation. And we want to encourage them to grow their companies as much here because it's going to employ local New Orleanians and keep them here. And it also is going to build this critical mass of music industry companies, which tends to give momentum because once you have more companies, more likely to locate, more artists are likely to stay. And eventually you get into a situation of a virtuous cycle, like a Nashville uh, or to some degree in Atlanta more recently where people are going there for music just because they think it's where they need to be. And at that point, you've got a network effect going and you're off to the races. So um, yeah, we're thrilled that we have these young management company comes coming in. We also have some great uh, established people that wanna be involved like Patrick Templeman who lives in New Orleans and is one of the most important um, finance managers in the music and entertainment world. Um, and he's here and he's gonna get involved. And so I think over time, you'll see more and more folks uh, using Miked Up as a way of growing their presence 
in New Orleans, even as they're giving back to make the city stronger culturally uh, and economically. I know it's complex, so I'm not asking you to drill down too deep, but explain just a little bit about how, how this will actually work. You know, what's the process like? So uh, the process is fairly straightforward. We're in about a month, we're gonna open up applications. Students are going to apply. They can apply from any of our two or four year universities uh, in the region. Uh, we're gonna vet them at GNO Inc. And then we're going to help place people at the local companies that are participating. Uh, folks who are selected will have this internship for a year. Uh, it's 20 hours a week. So you could have the internship and then have another job. You could you know, be interning at Mid-Citizen and then also you know, working at Tipitinas uh, as an example. Uh, and then at the end of the year, the intern and the company uh, are gonna be able to have a discussion about what next steps are, whether they stay with the company full time or whether they roll off and do something else or they decide to um, you know, go work for the IRS because music is just not for them. <laughs> of all things, the IRS. Um, okay, so that's fantastic. And uh, approximately how many students a year do you think you'll be able to handle? So uh, we're going to start off with about a dozen the first year, and then I think it'll end up growing probably geometrically after that is my guess. Uh, we're really only going to be constrained in the near term by the number by the capacity of local companies to take on students. One of the ways that we're going to manage that is by growing the breadth of company that's involved. This first year is just artist management, but going forward, uh, we could grow that, for example, to, to include uh, law firms that specialize in music. And so I think that uh, we'll see the program grow um, uh, pretty rapidly in coming years if it works as we expect it to. And, and people pr probably don't realize the average citizen who's not involved directly in the industry, how critical the uh, law firms are, because one of the chief things that has held back musicians in New Orleans is not having the rights to their own music and being oh. able to copyright what they do and, and get the benefit of it in royalties over time. And the musicians have been complaining about it forever, but they're really... Uh, you know, there hasn't been a concerted effort to make sure they have um, the help that they need legally. So law firms makes a lot of sense. They do. And particularly now, Gene, you know, as we're moving into this realm of Web3, where blockchain technology should allow artists to have better ownership and control over their IP, even more important that we, we work with our universities to help teach uh, the ins and outs of blockchain so that, you know, artists will not suffer the kind of historically typical fate of having people steal their, 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 their product, whether it's managers or people you know, ripping it off of Napster. It's kind of the sad history of music. Yeah. And I think we have a chance to change that to some degree based on new technology. For, for the members of the audience who are not familiar with the term blockchain, give them a quick. The way yeah. I think about blockchain is that it, it's, it's, a, it's a technology that allows you to track a digital file. So in the same way that there's a program that when I get a piece of fish at a restaurant, I can get a little note that says this piece of fish was caught by John Doe in Barataria Bay on March uh, you know, 7th, 2022. Um, it will follow the music file, which will basically prevent somebody from stealing it uh, and allow the, uh, the monetization, the royalties, the mechanical royalties to potentially go directly back to the artist instead of having to go through a middleman who takes a cut. So if it works the way I think it is, it's gonna be a disintermediating technology that's gonna really empower artists to control their own music and get paid from it. So it's potentially a really important um, uh, uh, event in the history of music. 
I'm really impressed with uh, the depth of your knowledge now on this industry. It, it, oh, it, I am. I am an inch deep and miles wide. I'm a big old puddle. I'm, I'm really uh, happy for that development because there was a time not that long ago when uh, really the economic development community was not acknowledging the importance of music and other creative industries. And there has been a, a, a real title change in that. Uh, in fact, I got a little bit over, um, a little overexcited about it and the introduction to my weekly newsletter this week jumps on this and says, and then I had to go back and say, oh, by the way, that'll be on next week's show. <laughs> this week, we're still going to talk a little bit about Mardi Gras um, art and uh, the glory of the creativity that's exhibited in the city during Mardi Gras. Mm. But it was um, with the, I'll tell you, the floats, Gene, you know, seeing the floats right? in, in I'm Morpheus, oh, it was really a reminder of the artistry and the time that goes into Mardi Gras. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful event. It's uh, all around. And the beauty of it is too that you can see it on all levels because it isn't just the huge floats that obviously cost a lot of money to produce, but the costumes and, and the walking groups. And even just the, if you look at the crowd, the crowd is all dressed up to the hilt. Oh. And so the pictures that we're carrying in our issue reflect that creativity that is just citywide. And I think that's the most important thing about Mardi Gras is that it's a, it's a display of the, the creativity of the city at so many levels. Um, you had another big announcement this week, and that was about um, a merger, let's call it, I guess, if that's the right word, with the um, World Trade Center which has really been disappointing for many of late. And um, it just is, it's been in a transition. And it looks like you, you are taking up that, um, you know, important mission because it, it, it had, a, 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 a originally, I guess the idea was basically to deal with international business. I'm not sure what your focus is gonna be going forward, but um, I think it's terrific that you've taken that on. So give us just a little hint about that please too. The World Trade Center is really important to New Orleans practically and symbolically. Uh, it was the first World Trade Center of what are now over 300 around the world. Uh, many of us have, have fond memories of going up and having a cocktail or having uh, lunch at the Plimsoll Club at the top of the World Trade Center, which is now the, the Four Seasons. And so we felt that it was very important um, symbolically that we revitalize the World Trade Center and practically for GNO Inc. Uh, we recognize that the World Trade Center has global recognition and GNO Inc. has recognition within about a 30 mile radius. So we thought that if we could help revitalize and stabilize the organization and at the same time allow GNO Inc. to double down on our international trade function and have access now to World Trade Centers in Dubai and in Europe and in Africa and in Asia, um, this could be a really exciting win for everybody. And so we're really thrilled that a number of individuals on the boards of both organizations saw it the same way. And uh, we think this is gonna be a, a new chapter in the 75 year old plus history of the World Trade Center. And also for GNO Inc represent a nice evolution uh, of us focusing, refocusing on, on international trade. So basically the way to think about it, Gene, is that the World Trade Center will become the international trade division of GNO Inc. That's fantastic. Um, uh, does that mean you will <clears throat> also occupy space in the building? Uh, no. So what's going to happen is the World Trade Center is moving into our offices over at the Energy Center okay. over on uh, Poydras and, and Loyola. Um, although okay. we do intend to uh, establish at least the Plimsoll Room uh, over at the Four Seasons that's going to include this massive bronze bust we discovered of Mr. Plimsoll. 
Uh, I've been talking <laughs> to the owners of the Four Seasons about. There's a plimsoll. Who knew? <laughs> now, now, do you know what a plimsoll is? No. Okay, a plimsoll is the little insignia you see on the hull of a ship that shows basically oh, how oh. low in the water the ship is sitting. And if you look at the hull, it looks like a circle with like a, a, a line coming down with a few cross hatches. That's called the plimsoll. I, I have seen that symbol. Yes. You know, you learned something. So that is, it's really? kind of like the base clef of the, the hull of the ship. That's fascinating. Okay. And um, actually for me, that is, uh, is a little bit symbolic of, um, uh, of refocusing and, and maybe I shouldn't say a refocusing, but it does call attention to our marine industry, which has been, of course, extraordinarily important over the years, but you don't hear that much about it um, in the past few years. So uh, it sounds like you're picking up on, on the importance of making sure that also thrives. Well, look, uh, the marine industry is why we bought New Orleans from Napoleon for $15 million a couple hundred years ago. Uh, and... Um, and in the process got a third of the country, uh, one out of every five jobs in Louisiana is dependent on trade in some way. Uh, and the sad reality is that this past year, Mobile actually passed us in terms of number of containers. Uh, yeah, we've had not had our eye on the ball for a few decades, basically because we took it for granted. We thought because we have the river and the railroads, uh, it would always be our birthright. Uh, but that's not the way the world works. So we want to refocus on optimizing the river and our ports, particularly for this post-COVID, uh, maybe post-globalization world order, where if we're smart and make the right investments, uh, we can serve the middle third of America through New Orleans. So I just have to um, reflect on that and say that if the, I thought the most important thing in the article uh, that you uh, spoke about in, in terms of uh, the river and our potential uh, is the linking of the ports and, and right now, one of the things that's happening in the creative sector in New Orleans that quite frankly has not happened since I have been here in the early 70s when I came here first from New York. And I, I was really surprised at the siloing in that community. Um, and now it's collaborating. There's a lot more collaboration going on. And I think the pandemic in an odd way, way really stimulated that. So I think that if, if, you, if you really can realize a, a leadership role in trying to bring these ports together, there just can't be too much more important than that because the idea of them working independently has been crazy for a long time. But I also wanna say that there are major developments in the international um, uh, industry in terms of uh, containerized shipping. And I'm, I'm really hopeful that that will be a focus uh, of your agency as well because um, I have to acknowledge that I'm not one of the people who's enormously supportive of a land-based shipping facility. And I think there's been discussion around the world about moving some of these containerized shipping um, ports onto water to prevent the level of impact that the online uh, on land um, um, developments have. So I know that there's a lot of energy now behind really making sure, as you said, that we, we don't slip further behind and that we advance our role in the shipping industry. But I think there's some research that's really critical to understand um, uh, global trends in this. And I know you know this, I'm speaking no, to- Well, and actually look, it's, it's, all, it's, all been, it's all been jumbled up over the past three weeks because of, of uh, you know, 
the the inexorable trend towards globalization has now maybe um, been changed. And so there's going to be a total resorting of supply chains because of COVID, because of Ukraine. And we have to understand the implications and make the right investments. And so that's that's going to be our focus is, um, you know, how do we try to optimize uh, our potential in, in this new world that we're coming into, which is difficult because nobody knows exactly what it's going to look like. But things are definitely changing. And one thing we know for sure is that having 32 ports in Louisiana, all independently managed, six of which don't even have water, is not the way to maximize our assets. <laughs> I didn't know that. That's yeah, it's kind of like dehydrated water. It doesn't really make sense, but it's a thing. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time this morning. Take care. Thank you. Good luck Thank with you. it all. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> uh, I'm not going to admit how long I've known Mark Romick, and you can't do that either, Mark, um, who is vice president of marketing for New Orleans and Company and has been working more or less in the tourism and diplomacy and economic development arenas for a long time, marketing. And um, one of my absolute most favorite memories of the World's Fair, which we both worked for and tortured our way through, was uh, the night before the opening. And I've, I, I know you've heard me say this, but um, I say it all the time, when Mark picked me up in a four-wheeler and we tooled around the quiet site uh, with all the lights ablaze, with the magic about to explode the next day, but in this kind of quiet, with just the roar of the wheels of our four-wheeler. I, I mean, I just, I carry, I'm getting goosebumps. I carry that memory. That is my number one favorite memory of the World's Fair. Those are some fine times. I still see that as really my true stepping stone into uh, what I did, uh, what I've done pre uh, since then. So very exactly. special. Yeah. And, and, and I actually, it was a stepping stone for me too, because one of my next stops was New York, where I had to work for the city of New York during the uh, recession of 88 from here. But uh, let's see, here it was 84 but there it was 88. And so I learned damage control at the fair. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, lots of opportunities for that. <laughs> it came in very handy in New York. Um, anyway, we're not talking damage control today because, um, phew, we had Mardi Gras, um, first of all, for our residents, getting us back out and, um, uh, Earlier in the show, you all heard Doug McCash talk about the art of Mardi Gras. And I really think there was like a, a, a super charismatic level of the art this year. Can't explain it, but um, it just feels like it was, there was a push for it to be truly great in the costumes, in the floats, in just the action on the street, everything, the markets and everybody, you know, suiting up. Um, Cannon and I pretending to be pretend royalty on our porch, which um, was enjoyable. Uh, it's nice to be the queen of something other than the South Bronx. So it was fun. <laughs> but um, I, I get the feeling, Mark, and you tell me yay or nay, that um, not only did we do well, we had very few um, incidents that were troubling and uh, we don't know yet if there's going to be any kind of a surge, but it didn't feel like um, there, there's going to be. And it did feel like people really wanted to come back to New Orleans. And it was very reassuring about our, 
our future as a um, hospitality um, center for the world. Yeah, right? there, there was so much enthusiasm, not only in the streets, um, but with the, the crews that put on some beautiful parades this year, the marching groups, uh, the, the Black Mardi Gras Indian, uh, it, they came out in such color. Um, and then we also had the same enthusiasm with our visitors. Uh, we weren't quite where we were in 2020 or 2019, but we didn't expect to be. But we received really more than I thought we were going to get. We were in the upper 80 percentile in the um, uh, sure, yeah. uh, for Saturday night. We're still waiting for our figures from Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. But to be within six or seven points of where we were in previous years is, is a testimony to the, the ability for the city to be that beacon for so many people to want to come and enjoy themselves. Uh, and of course, the weather worked in our favor as well. And, and uh, oh, overall, I think it was a great stepping stone to somebody, now. Somebody was on season. our side, right? Yeah. And, you know, we step into festival season in a big way now with over 130 permitted festivals on an annual basis. Normally in New Orleans, uh, we're coming into a season where these festivals represent really the backbone of our leisure uh, tourism economy. And also from the standpoint of it's just not the music and the food, but there are a lot of other jobs and industries that support those festivals, whether it's staging or the uh, audiovisual or security or the arts and crafts. So it, it becomes it becomes sort of this uh, ecosystem of of um, of industry and work and opportunities for spending and to um, and to grow. So uh, we're excited. We've got uh, a number of great things happening. Um, uh, and I, I believe to your point, uh, the city got through Mardi Gras in a very uh, good way. I think the restrictions that were in place gave the signal that we wanted to make sure that people were gonna be safe here from a health standpoint uh, with over 86, I think 86% of our adult population fully vaccinated. 86, uh, wow, I didn't realize uh, that. You know, and sure the restrictions, some people uh, liked them and some people didn't, but I think uh, to give the mayor credit for being uh, very conservative and making sure that our, our people were gonna be protected uh, I think that that went a long way and people responded. I think people responded in a very respectful way. So uh, we're excited for what, what we see in the future. So um, during, uh, I don't remember the date exactly when there was a meeting of um, a kind of big open meeting of, of members of New Orleans company. And um, Steve Perry was talking about um, how things were changing in the hospitality industry as a result of the pandemic. And um, of course, we were still very much in the middle of it. I think if I recall, I don't remember the date, but I'm pretty sure I remember that it was uh, definitely before um, uh, Omicron, Omicron and, right. um, really kicked in uh, heavily. Yeah. But so so tell me what what was he talking about? What are, what are the... Um, one of the ways in which you feel like the, the industry has uh, evolved or is evolving as a result of their experience during the pandemic? Well, first, let's look at the consumer because we believe that the, and I'll say post-COVID, even though we, we are still in COVID, we still, unfortunately, are losing people every day and people are being, in, being infected. But, you know, a sense that the vaccinations have done their job to lessen the degree of severity. Um, so having said that, 
the consumer is thinking differently now. They've been they've been held up in their homes or, or uh, in their cities for for two years for the most part, and they're thinking differently about what they want to do and, and what their booking window is. How far out do they want to plan? You know, in the midst of COVID, people yeah. were planning just a Thursday to get in a car on Friday to drive somewhere. Um, that played well for New Orleans because our sweet spot is the, the region drive market. Yeah, um, so. Knowing that uh, we were messaging um, in a very uh, quick way to say that, that we did have opportunities, that we had some safeguards in place, wear a mask, you know, socially distant, you know, be vaccinated. And we were inviting people to come and enjoy what New Orleans could offer uh, under the guise of a, of, a, of a safe environment from that standpoint. Uh, that will, I think you'll see more of that sort of consumer checking in as to what I can do in your in your city and how I can be safe. And we get that a lot. Our website is filled with information for the consumer to understand what to expect when they come to our city. Now the mask mandate is lifted. Uh, that has opened up an, another new uh, decision set of people who had actually said, no, I'm not coming to New Orleans until the masks or until you stop asking me for my vaccination card or whatever. You know, gradually we'll get to a point, I think, that um, that will occur, hopefully, that uh, we're back to full normalcy. Uh, but you know, we're studying the consumer right now. We're doing research in the marketplace to understand their thought process. We believe that New Orleans can represent for the visitor a place they can come heal. Now, I know you don't hear that often, but if you think about the spas that you can go to in the far west or you, know, you can go to these um, opportunities to get away for a week and you go on a diet and you exercise, New Orleans, I think, offers something else for, for the soul, and that is... Well, it certainly offers something else other than uh, dieting, that's for sure. Yeah, you know, it's it's like <laughs> it's like people want to get into themselves because they've been very inward these last two, two years. And I think New Orleans offers an opportunity for their soul to experience the richness of, of what we provide that no other city can provide, whether it's the architecture or the gardens or the museums are the food or the music. Those are the things, those sensory experiences that we can offer, I think uh, can help heal and get people to, um, to fully embrace themselves and what, 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 uh, what they're all about. So I think you'll see us kind of painting this in a way that we've got these, what we call the four pillars, culinary, outdoor experiences, fine arts and museums, performing arts, um, and use that as a sort of the, and many more assets within those four pillars, but use that as sort of the, the, the legs to the stool to represent New Orleans as the cultural capital where you can come in and experience things that can bring you out of yourself and, and to become a, a more full human being. You know, I wanna add one thing to those legs and um, we tend to uh, forget about or take for granted as, uh, something that we, we do about all of our uh, culture in a way in New Orleans, but our, our green city, our gardens, yeah, the gardens our park, and our trees. And, and I know you've been a true advocate of that. And, and we have so many opportunities for people to be outside <clears throat> and to enjoy these uh, beautiful um, either design gardens or gardens that just pop up, whether it's something as formal as Longview Gardens to the, 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 the flora and fauna you can see at City Park or, or Audubon or just the, the neighborhood gardens that we have all over the, all over the community. Just, just a little spot, places in front of the homes of just about any neighborhood in the city, even the ones that really don't have a lot of resources. 
Um, there's a house near me um, uh, in Treme. Um, the lady there has always had this big, extraordinary blooming rose uh, bush that um, I, you just, you, you, you don't necessarily smell it, but you can, you, you know how, um, um, what is the word, mellifluous? Is that the word? Um, you can, you can, you can just smell. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's so uh, laden with roses always. So yeah, it's, it's everywhere in the city. No one's really, I don't think, done justice to that. No, you know, you just brought up a great idea, Jean. You know, as we did the house floats last Mardi Gras and how those proliferated and in, even into this season with, with the floats and the parades actually happening, people still decorated and the crew of house floats still happen. I could imagine a, a festival of sorts that becomes a garden festival of neighborhoods where you you can register to have your garden on the map and people drive through the city uh, into all the neighborhoods, into all the wards to see how people have done such great things with their front lawns and neutral grounds. I know we have a special neutral ground on Fontbleau that we try to keep up. I would like to pull over every car that I see, throw out a, a coffee cup or, or a wrapper, but um, uh, which we should we should attack those kind of issues as well. But I, I think that's that's probably could be the start of another festival. Yes, I think that the city um, is basically a pretty much a nonstop festival. Truth be <laughs> well, well, we're so entrepreneurial about how we create things. Like last year when we created Nola by Nola, which was the first time there was a festival of venues in the country. It wasn't at one spot. It was at thirty plus clubs and venues around the. Uh, around the city for those two weeks in October when they really needed the business jazz fest. Yeah, that was when we, we were supposed to have a jazz fest. And right. And, you know, Mark, I don't know if you know this, but white, um, our art for art's sake event in the fall and white linen night, um, we were the first city in America to do joint art gallery openings. And it was in association with um, a, a show that we did in the very early days of the Contemporary Arts Center that was um, a, a kind of an artist call. And in order to really um, partner with galleries, not just beg them for their art for the show, right. you know, we made it a, a, a collaborative, cooperative thing. And by the way, Diane Wenninger, I always like to call credit to founders because um, us founders often get forgotten, but she was one of the people who really made that happen. It was um, kind of her thinking Very about good. it. And then uh, White Linenite uh, still shocks me because there we are in the worst dead heat of the year in August. And we have usually, uh, from what I understand, 30 to 40,000 people come out. Yes, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful out. event. And I, I see that Fidelity Bank has picked up the sponsorship now. And um, of course, the following week, they have dirty linen night because everyone that wore their white linen that first week in August probably uh, has to uh, take it to the cleaners, but they'll wait till after the next week is over with. And, and, and dirty linen takes place, of course, on St. Claude Avenue, which is um, I sometimes try to help um, people from away, as we say here, understand that that's basically our Williamsburg. That is um, our um, downtown art scene. And that is so thriving. And I'm, I'm really appreciative of the fact that I think it's being recognized more by uh, people in the tourism industry um, than it was initially. Yeah. Because initially it was kind of, you know, it was funky. It still is funky, but it but that's, is- That's um, the spirit of it. It needs to be that way. Yeah, we don't want to change that. That's right. Um, so uh, I, I think that um, you, you have given us a pretty optimistic uh, picture of things and um, I hope you're right. Well, we were out marketing right now. We're in the region. We've got a wonderful uh, commercial running that features John Baptiste 
and a number of other great musicians that came out of New Orleans uh, that was shot at Preservation Hall. So that'll run through March 20th. Uh, we're also helping advertise and bring people in for the Queen Nefertari exhibit at the New Orleans Museum of Art, which will run through July 17th. You know, that's going to be like a King Tut exhibit. Uh, those of you who remember that. Hopefully people will come in and spend several nights here as well as go see the exhibit and go to our restaurants and go to our gardens and parks and, and, and do a lot of other things. So we're doing everything we can to bring some spending into the city to help lift the economy. All right. Well, let's rock and roll. Let's keep running uh, the streets and um, uh, enjoying the food, enjoying all the culture that the city has to offer. And I often like to make the point that um, the past is not past in New Orleans. It is part of the present. Uh -huh. um, so uh, unlike a lot of other places, we don't um, you know, treat our um, history as uh, dead, it, it's alive. Um, but at the same time, we're also always innovating. And I think a lot of people did not really understand that about New Orleans until after Katrina and they came here to help. And then they discovered, oh, wow, there's a contemporary art scene. There's new music going on. There's sissy bounce, which they'd never heard of before they came here. And um, by the way, I can't help but plug the dance festival that our organization is gonna be doing um, this year in, in a neighborhood in the city. And it's gonna focus on that, that juxtaposition of the legacy and, and the contemporary in the future. Wonderful. Let us know how we can help promote. Thank you. Um, Mark Romig, Tourism at, at uh, Supreme at the New Orleans and Company. And um, um, he's looking at uh, the city and, and all of us and hopefully it's gonna be just great. Can't believe it's almost April. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, now that was part one. Okay. Um, so um, I think I, I kept that pretty much within the time. So um, let me just, um, if, if you think it's of value to do right now, but, or if we should wait until you get all the rest of your numbers in, Mark, maybe- Yeah, we we're gonna have, actually tomorrow morning, we're gonna get the numbers in for Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. Okay, so, so uh, but I'll probably, if you all put, you, but you won't put anything out on it uh, by tomorrow. No, we, we're trying to find it. The mayor has a call tomorrow with some folks and she wanted to uh, have the numbers. So we're scrambling to get the numbers right now. But as soon as I get them, I can give them to you as well. Okay, so, but that'll probably still be for my show next week because I will have put my newsletter to bed by the end of the day tomorrow. Um, well, let's, you want to touch base in the morning? I can verbally give them to you. Okay, yeah. Let's just maybe shoot me an email or call. Have a little uh, um, additional piece. We'll see how it all works out. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's it. Oh yeah, I want to talk to you some more about the dance festival. I need to talk to you about John Baptiste because his video "Freedom" and you oh, know about it. I love that. Is that the? I think it's the absolute best representation of New Orleans that they're in the production. Ever the production on the street and and the choreography of all those people coming together. Right. Right, and I'm actually uh, very curious about the uh, the choreographer uh, on that. Uh, but I want to talk to you about John because we really want him uh, for our thing. You know, he was at my um, he, we're 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 off the show now. Um, uh, he was at the the uh, studios of Colton. He played for us uh, there in a kind of little do drop in revival thing that we did um, okay. uh, right after Katrina when we were still in the school building. Um, so he kind of sort of remembers me, I think, from that. Um, and it was, it, we had a huge crowd and it was a very popular show and so on. But um, we really want him to be part of this um, production that we're doing. 
And um, so, I mean, I could make a call, I could have WWL make a call, but I tried working through WWL once before and it didn't go anywhere at all. So yeah, we tried to get him to be an honorary chair for our lock in the park, which is this coming next, next Friday night at the, at the, yeah. um, at the park, David and I are co-chairing it with, um, Oh, are Deb, you? Okay. Deb Elam and Kerry Grant and his sketch. I mean, we, we worked with oh, him. So we should do, that's what we should do. Um, when we hook up again on our conversation, I didn't realize that let's do something on that for next week's show. Okay. Yeah. We try to get him to be honorary chair, but his schedule, particularly with the Grammys coming up and, you know, um, I think he's going to go into, go into the universal stars after the Grammys. Cause I got a sense he's got to win a majority of those 11 nominations. Oh, that's true. Yeah. No, he could be one of the, the most decorated Grammy uh, honorees by the time this is over with, because imagine if he, if he scored all he 11. He beat Fats Domino. How many did Fats get? I don't remember, but it was a lot. He was at one point the record holder. Wow. Uh, well, I'm sure that I, would be something. I kind of want to say a 20 number, but I could be wrong about that. Yeah. Well, he's still, you know, he's a young cat, so. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's he he will he will be up there. He's amazing. He truly drink your coffee. His whole presence is amazing. Thank you. We'll talk. Call me in the morning if you got numbers. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Bye. Bye. We have now with us Chief Fio, who is going to be our very important source for understanding the connection between the Mardi Gras Indians in New Orleans and St. Joseph's Day. So uh, yeah, how did, how did this all get started? So mainly mainly for, um, for the Mardi Gras Indians based upon the, the history that was passed on to me, uh, this, this particular holiday dealing with St. Joseph's uh, Day, which we, we refer to predominantly as St. Joe Night, um, it, it was more about um, coming together, fellowshipping, uh, the, the feasting part, which pretty much started the gathering. And um, it, it's kind of like if you get a bunch of individuals together for a purpose of having a good time, the celebration will segue from one moment, one method of celebrating to another. And I, and I think it started with that. Uh, I, I still carry on the uh, the festival part of it. Uh, typically on St. Joseph's Day, uh, we all meet together at the bar where my tribe is from at Bullets Bar in New Orleans on 82 Row. We do a uh, annual cookout that I've been doing since 2006. Uh, all the tribes are invited. We come together. Uh, we all, we, what we call break bread. We, we all sit down and eat, uh, drink, have a good time prior to the, uh, the nighttime festivities, which we, uh, we mask in our regalia and uh, interact in our competitiveness, uh, tribe for tribe and, you know, neighborhood and neighborhood. But prior uh, to. Uh, um, okay. So prior, that's, prior, uh, that's interesting. So, yeah, so it's, there's a, there's two parts to it. One is the, um, the breaking bread, the festivity, the eating together and enjoying being in each other's company. And Correct. then there's the more formal uh, rituals of presenting the different tribes in their regalia. And, and, and again, going back to that competitive uh, element, I assume. So friends one minute and comp competition the next, but friendly competition. Correct. Correct. So, so um, tell me about the, the different locations and, um, you know, the, this, this, this coming together of different tribes in certain locations and then this parading uh, uh, through routes by the different organizations. Uh, give me a little bit better feel for how all that works. Okay, so uh, for the most part, uh, every, every tribe is a direct representative of, 
a particular part of New Orleans, uh, quote unquote neighborhoods or what we mostly classify them as wards. So um, the, depending on what ward you're from, ninth ward, seventh ward, third ward, and so on and so on, uh, you would do everything to, uh, you, you, it's all about representing your community. Uh, I, I guess a good example is uh, when you have the NFL, you have different teams that represent different uh, cities and uh, across the United States. Well, the Mardi Gras are just like that. Instead of representing multiple cities, we represent multiple wards in New Orleans and we all represent our neighborhood to the fullest. Um, you parade in your neighborhoods to start the day, uh, obviously honoring your community, giving your community an opportunity to see you uh, in your costume so that they can be proud and that you're representing well. And of course, once you uh, get all, show all the love and support to the people in your neighborhood, then after that, you're marching on to go have your interactions with other neighboring uh, tribes to, uh, to pretty much challenge to see who's, who's the baddest, who deserves all the bragging rights to say that uh, not only my tribe, but my ward is the best. Right. You know, um, I, it's, it's, it's interesting. Uh, I, I kind of knew that, but um, you, you are, are um, you, you experience constantly over and over again in many different ways how important neighborhoods are in the city of New Orleans. I'm mm. originally from the Bronx and our neighborhoods are all important there too, but not in the way they are here. I would say that there's an attachment that people have to their neighborhood that is like above and beyond yes. uh, what happens in other cities. So uh, I, I want to talk about that for a minute and understand why is there such a strong connection? So you hear that expression always about, oh, I'm going to go by my mama's house. And going by your mama's house means going back to the neighborhood where you were raised. Correct. Right? That's Correct. part of it. Why are the individual neighborhoods, even within the wards. So, you know, I live in Treme and I and, and, and um, barracks, uh, my house is on Esplanade. Um, on Barrack Street right behind me is like a whole different cluster of cultures and, and, and people. And there are people who, who identify with Barrack Street. So talk to me a little bit about that block by block, really, even, right? Okay. Um, okay. Yeah. So, so what, what, I, what I'll say is this, there's, there's an old saying, um, and, and, it, and it goes, uh, it takes a village to raise a family. And, and what that means is a lot of times when, you, when you're raising your child, it's, and I, I experience this now because I'm, I'm a father of, of five boys. Uh, you, you can tell your children. Did you say you're a father of five boys? Yes, yes, I have five, <laughs> I have five boys. Good luck, chief. That's, <laughs> that's, that's a job. <laughs> yeah, they 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 all grown and gone. The uh my oh, youngest wow. is my okay. youngest is a little girl. Uh and she is uh she doesn't listen to nothing that I say. It's probably because uh -oh. I just I just buy whatever she asks. <laughs> okay. I understand. <laughs> but, um, going 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 to that that concept of uh, it takes a village to raise a family is, is kind of like this. Uh you, you you depend on people of uh of, of, of uh, similar opinions, uh, people who shared the experiences that you've experienced, you know, in the world. And when you when you deal with that, dealing with people with with similar understanding, you can tell your child the same thing over and over time and time again. But it's something about when they hear from a total stranger or a neighbor, it sinks in. Or when you have the next door neighbor seeing your child doing something, because you know children are different when they're not in your presence. So you can have your child may be one way with you when they leave home, they're totally different, they act different. But if everybody in the neighborhood knows your child, know their name, they know that regardless of where they're going, they have to worry about somebody watching and call mom. 
That's interesting. So really looking after the children is a very big part of it. But then it's also, again, the connection with your, your mom, your parents and your grandparents. I mean, the connection here I find between parents and grandparents, again, is also stronger. I guess because in, in a, another factor may very well be also that in other cities, there's more mobility in and out of the city than mm -hmm. there, there has been. Now things are changing and with the hurricanes that we've been going through and, and, mm -hmm. and people having to uh, leave their neighborhoods, unfortunately, it's, it's definitely right since Katrina, we've, so many people have had to, um, you know, relocate it to Texas or Baton Rouge or upriver or whatever, Atlanta, et cetera. Um, but in other cities, I think the mobility is, is more a um, ingrained pattern. So like, again, where I grew up in the Bronx, a lot of people moved through the Bronx and didn't stay there. They moved out to Long Island, they moved to Westchester, you know, as they did better, they moved. Whereas here, I think there's more of a tendency. If you still have folks who've moved out of Treme to the east, for example, but mm -hmm. the connection with the, with Treme is still strong. Um, yeah, that's a very that's a very good point that you made because um, when I was in New Orleans, is like Wakanda. It's like a big bubble. Um, I live in Slidell now, and uh, I didn't even I, I thought Slidell was out of town until I was like 26 years old because I never had a reason to leave New Orleans. Everything that you needed was there. So uh, that, that's, that's a very strong point that you're making with that. Yeah, and then of course now you have um, so much gentrification too. That's another factor that's right. changed in, in New Orleans. Um, and so I wonder how much that's affecting things. So right, right here in Treme where I live, man, you know, who walked in front of my house back then and who walks in front of my house today is really very different. different, very, very different. different. And the homes uh, throughout, you can, you can drive down a street and look at the cars and the houses. And, and I, can, I can tell you which ones are new people versus people who used to live there, right? Correct. So um, reflect on that for me. How does that affect the Indian culture? Uh, that, that, is, that is very different because when you have, when you have a lot of uh, people that's moving into the neighborhoods who's not, who not familiar with uh, how things have been uh, traditionally over the years, uh, some may be offended by it. Uh, some may be uh, somewhat lethargic, confused about what's going on. Uh, and the, the support factor also plays a part. If, if you have someone who's moving into the area because they, uh, they, they like to, they just like the look of it or they focus strictly on jazz and, and not the, the noise making of the percussions with the Mardi Gras Indians, they may, they, they may complain about it. Everybody's not going to embrace things they're not familiar with. So it, it can be somewhat conflicting. But I think that uh, if everybody would just take the time to just explain themselves uh, and educate uh, those who are interested or willing to listen, it, it can go a long way. How did you get involved uh, with the Indians? Was that a family thing? Did people in your family precede you in it, or yeah, it was. Jump it, into it, was it? it was it was a it was a family thing. Several of, several of my uncles were were involved in it, and just over the years of following and being supportive, uh, I grew to like it. And uh, before you know it, I was doing my own thing. What about um, Second Lines and uh, um, and Social Aid and Pleasure Clubs? Are you involved in that level too, or is yeah, it so I, staying with the Indian uh, for um, groups? I actually started off with music first. Uh, my uncle was the uh, was the founder of Dejan's Olympia Brass Band, uh, Harold Dejan. Oh my uh, God! Oh, so uh, okay. I, I started now off I know who you first. are. <laughs> 
I knew so, that name Dejan was ringing a bell for me. Okay. Dejan, Dejan. Okay. All right. Go ahead. I, I started off as, as a jazz musician as a young kid uh, in elementary school. Uh, in the, as the years went by, uh, I, I experienced mass in India, and I think I was roughly around 23 years old. And at that time, I retired to horn and uh, transitioned over to the Indian culture. How do you see things going forward? We're going to run out of time pretty soon, so I really want to say, you know, what's the trend? What, what, how do we see this going forward? Are the younger folks in your family, your sons, uh, for example, um, are they embracing it? Um, uh, what's the future? I think, I think uh, sometimes it, it, it skips generation. Uh, most, most commonly, you'll see uh, sons and daughters uh, rarely follow the leads of fathers, but the grandchildren, um, you know, tend to uh, tend to follow the lead of the grand the grandfather, and I think what happens is it's a different thought process. You probably can relate. When your mom and dad raised you, their level of discipline was different from how they treated the grandkids, and and because of that, the grandkids appreciates being around grandpa and grandma a little bit better oh, right. versus parents it. are met yeah. with a little bit more resistance. <laughs> I hear you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's interesting. That is really interesting. So you feel like it's safe. It's a tradition that's going to continue. And, and, and the national culture that has become so much more dominant through social media and um, the television and so on, we, we can still compete with that? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, if, if anything is going to, is going to help the, uh, the culture grow, as far as popularity and notoriety, because uh, we we've really? never we've never experienced the, the level of exposure that we're experiencing now. I mean, the New Orleans tourism uh, deal has helped tremendously over the years, but the national attention that we can receive now, you know, thanks to social media, is uncanny. Oh, explain that to me. So, so di different things that that go on uh, along the world. Like, uh, I've attended a gala in, in in San Francisco, California. I've attended. Uh, France uh, for different different uh, festivals that they have out there that never knew existed. Um, so you know, be, being being a New Orleans native, you, and you're not used to traveling like we spoke about previously uh, in, in in the show. Now there's there's so many different people that can view different things that's going on in New Orleans, which is similar to like the the Brazilian uh, festivals and stuff like that. People are now coming down to see it and also asking or paying for to bring that culture and that energy you know, to different parts all over the world. Do you feel like you're getting a sufficient support from the city in terms of what it costs you, uh, frankly, basically to do what you do? Because, you know, doing all that, I mean, first of all, there's the literally the sewing that you have to do. That's that's but that, that's not a cost so much as it is to your time. But the beads and the feathers and the fabrics and so on and so on. And um, uh, do you feel like you're getting enough support in the city itself in general? Did you are you reluctant to answer that or, or did you freeze? I think you froze. Oops. I just lost you. Um, I'm, I'm going to say right now that if, if uh, I don't pick them back up, I may have to um, follow this up with another interview at another time. But um, there, here he comes back. Hi. Yeah, I lost you for a minute. I need your audio. Demute. There we go. Okay. So my question was, um, do you feel like you're getting enough support from the city for what you do? For, for uh, I, I would, as it, individually, um, I really don't look for support. I would have to say on a, on a wide scale, as far as the culture 
in its entirety, I would have to say yes. Uh, the reason I say that is because I, I began organizing the Downtown Super Sunday in the year of 2012. And uh, I've dealt with, I think, maybe if two mayors and maybe two different department heads in the culture economy uh, department, and their team has been phenomenal. Uh, the communication has been great. There's a lot of people that mask Indian that doesn't really uh, understand those relationships because they haven't been in the position that I'm in. So they, some people may be highly opinionated to say that the city doesn't do anything, but when, whenever you choose to do something, whatever it is, uh, I think it's a coming upon you as an adult to be responsible for things that you decide to do without looking for quote unquote handouts, but uh, whatever, whatever position the city is in to help us as far as permits, waivers and stuff like that, they've definitely been very, very supportive of the culture. So you're showing the same resilience that those fighters in, in um, uh, um, Ukraine? Yeah, Ukraine yeah. right now. So uh, we can, we can yes. make that analogy. Um, this has been, I've, I've really enjoyed this. This has been great talking with you. I look, I look forward to staying in touch with you. Keep okay. my, uh, keep my listing in your database there. And yeah, um, when you got something going on, please give me a call. And let me know. And, and let me make sure people know about it. I most certainly will. Chief, thank you so much. I thank really you. enjoyed have it. And okay, I love your name, Fio. Yes, <laughs> you take care and have a you great St. Joseph's Day. And oh, I yes, hope you have no bad side experiences too. Agreed. Right. Agreed. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay. See you out there. Bye-bye.